having every voice represented in the development of that mission and and what we value at Choice was a game changer for the culture at Choice because everyone has skin in the game. I involved them in major decisions. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, growing up, Heather Adams always had her nose in a book. And her heroes spoke to her from the pages. Smart and savvy women like Anne of Green Gables and Joe from Little Women and Nancy Drew. Heather compares Nancy Drew's mystery-solving adventures to her own life today as the owner of a public relations agency called Choice Media and Communications because she's always running toward the flames, constantly taking notes and bringing order to the chaos. But unlike Nancy Drew, Heather isn't doing this alone, and she is passionate about building a cohesive, invested team. After the partnership with her co-founder dissolved, Heather held a strategic planning retreat for her entire team. They re-evaluated Choice's mission and core values, and Heather says this was a game changer for their work culture because now everyone has skin in the game. Heather also has an unusual approach to human relations, arguing that you have to throw out all of the policies and love your workers as human beings first, which I love that idea. When one of her team members is going through a hard season, she puts their responsibilities at work aside and taps into what they need now in being present. This human-first approach carries through every aspect of Heather's business and life, including her attitude toward her competition. Before Heather started her own company, she actually worked at Thomas Nelson, which at that time was the world's largest Christian publishing house. She worked with Michael Hyatt, who eventually became the CEO and chairman. He taught her many important lessons, including to embrace the competition and look at them as someone to learn from and champion instead of someone to take down. Heather sees that as a crucial transformation in her life. As she says, I have this mentality now that a win for one is a win for all. And that was something I had to learn because I sucked at it. This is an incredible conversation. It went longer than it typically does, but it was. It will be worth your while to listen to this episode in entirety. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Heather Adams, I am dying to know what was your first job? Well, Mike, you are going to be thrilled to hear that my very, very first job was as a salesperson at The Gap. <laughs> I could totally see that, by the way. 
I loved it so much. I loved everything about the boards that you took to fold the clothes and dealing with the um, customers that came in. I also really liked the fact that I got 50% off of all the clothes that I got to wear to school. (laughs) So I was a sales associate at the Gap. Yeah, you were a mall rat just like me. A hundred percent. I mean, you have to do your time, right? It's like a rite of passage. It totally is. Yeah, I worked at I worked at a handful of clothing stores in the mall. The first one was Structure. Do you remember that? Yes. Oh my gosh, I forgot about Structure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Structure. I worked at a place called. Mr. Rags, which was kind of like a rave store, like when ra- raves were really big <laughs> and those really big, big, huge pants. I don't know if you remember those, like people like used to Z-Cavarici's. wear those. No, well, I used to own a pair of those, by the way, <laughs> Z Cavaricis, which is embarrassing to say. But uh, no, these were like rave pants that were like, they, they didn't taper down at the bottom. They were just huge and they had like all kinds of bells and whistles. I mean, it was just, I was not into raves. It was just a store in the mall and I needed a job. It was it was a weird store. And then where else did I worked at another clothing store? I forget. Obviously it didn't have that large of an impact. But you mentioned folding clothes. And so I'm I'm wagering that you really loved the Marie Kondo documentary uh, tidying up. Oh, a hundred percent. I watched every episode in one sitting. I loved everything about the organization and the structure. I mean, you have to remember I'm an Enneagram one. And so order, perfection, like nice, tidy, clean, like all of that is right up. (laughs) I think, you know, I got to go, I got to go back and I got to do the Enneagram thing again because I think I'm a three or a seven. I would have pegged you for a three. Yeah. That's the achiever. That's the one who's driven to results and. Yeah, you know, constantly heading toward the goal. Like, yeah, I think that's that's probably me. Yeah, I think that's probably me. And I, I don't always know how that's going to (laughs) happen. You know, (laughs) how we're going to get there. I just go. Sometimes I don't know where I'm going anyway, but I just know I need to go somewhere. You know, it's kind of like how I started this podcast. I just knew I needed to do it. You know, and so I did. With all here, I am. Um, you know, people that you have interviewed, I, yeah, I feel privileged to be in that company. Yes, absolutely. When you were growing up, when you were folding clothes at the Gap, and you were daydreaming about the future, maybe thinking about you know that fifty percent discount, whatever you know, beyond that, when you saw beyond the discount signs and all that, what did you dream about becoming when you were growing up? Well. For years growing up, I thought I was going to be an attorney and that I would go to law school. And then as I got into the last few years of high school and into college, I really felt like I had this passion for telling stories. And I would ended up being the yearbook editor um, of our high school yearbook. And so I told stories, you know, while I was on yearbook staff and I look back at those now and as someone who is getting ready to celebrate my 25th anniversary graduation, 20, have, we're having our 25th reunion this fall. You, know, you look back at those stories in the yearbook to remember like what happened and to trigger all that fun stuff that went on and crazy stuff mm-hmm. that went on. 
but I loved telling stories. And so I was really interested in how I could do that together. How could I, how could I bring the law and uh, telling stories together? So when I originally went off to college, I thought that I was going to be an Olivia Pope of sorts. This was long before scandal existed, but I thought I was going to end up in DC and that I was going to work for a government official and that I was going to be in the press room managing all the crisis, right? And so that was as I got older. But when you look back, you can see, you know, God's fingerprints through your life when you get, when you're, you know, where you are now. And I, I look back and remember and see all these different um, points where telling stories was important to me, whether it was my own or someone else's. Mm. I love that. You know, you said that uh, sometimes you can see God's fingerprints through your life. Well, sometimes you can all also feel the impression that He's making on you. You know, <laughs> as He's like putting His thumb into your back, saying, "Go do this." You know. Well, or, or reminding you that he's in control. Yeah, totally, totally. Were you voted most likely to fill in the blank in your yearbook? Yes. What were you? Most school spirit. Nice. Oh, you got the spirit award. I could see okay. that. Totally. <laughs> yes. I was not a cheerleader. I played volleyball in school, but I was... And if you name a club, I was in it and I was an officer in it. National Honor Society. I was the editor of the yearbook. I was in student government. I mean, you name it and I was involved in it. And Mm -hmm. I was really, really proud to go to Sprayberry High School. I was at every single sporting event in my black and gold. You know, I was the um, one who organized all of the parades for homecoming and, you know, just anything that had to do with being proud of, of my school and where I came from. I was, Mm. that was me. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I was voted most likely to be famous. (gasps) I love that, buddy. (laughs) Along with, (laughs) along with another high school classmate of mine named Tamara Crawford, who ended up being a cheerleader for this for the San Diego Char- Chargers. Wow. But uh, wow, she was also crushing it as a sales representative for Cisco. And, you know, I, I was a music, I was a, I was an actor. And so that, you know, I was singing, doing musical theater, all that stuff. And I was pursuing that path of, you know, acting. And, and that's why they voted me most likely to be well, famous. Well, and here you are performing you know? still with this incredible voice. That's yeah, perfect you know? for and, the podcast world. Yeah, you know, so it's 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 amazing you think that you're going to go down one path and then you and we'll talk about this because then you're going down one path and there's a fork in the road and sometimes somebody else pushes you down that fork and you didn't want to go there. And one of the biggest mistakes I think that we make as just in in life is we don't believe that we can take with us all of that that we've learned in our on the previous path, right? That we have to leave that behind. You know, like when I stopped acting, it wasn't necessarily out of my own free will. I mean, sure. it was. I ultimately made the choice, but it was over. It was because of the encouragement of somebody I loved and respected, who said, "You know, if you pursue this path, you're going to really." suffer and struggle and you might fail. And, and that was really scary to me. And for a long, and I left 
and I stopped doing it. And for a long time, I resented that. And I thought that I couldn't carry with me all of that stuff because that was over there, a different time, not relevant anymore. And boy, was I wrong. Well, and you also feel, I, I personally feel like sometimes you look at those failures or those changes or those times when you've pivoted as a mistake and you're embarrassed or you feel shame for that. And now, I'm 43 now, I look back at those and I'm like, gosh, there's no way I would have this life that I have now if I hadn't have pivoted then, if I yeah. hadn't have experienced that, that change, that failure, that, you know, gone through all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're, you know, and here I, you know, it comes full circle because now I'm, I'm on this different stage. I'm also giving presentations and speaking and, and so I'm, I'm still performing in that sense, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, so it's just, you can never, you, you never underestimate that, what you were doing once before that you loved can't be applied to what you're doing now. And I think that's an incredibly freeing thing. But back to your childhood. Who was your childhood hero? Oh, I love that question. So immediately this visual comes to mind of me sitting um, in the yard in the summer reading books. I always had my nose in a book. And I think my heroes, Mike, were those women in the stories that I was reading. You know, Anne of Green Gables and Laura Ingalls Wilder and Joe from Little Women and Nancy Drew. You know, these strong women that were showing their personality and that were um, some sort of change agent within the story that I was reading, within the book, within the pages of of the book that I was reading. And I admired and respected those, those girls or those women and, and wanted to model after them, right? And wanted to learn from them and wanted to be like them. And so I, I think that those, the fact that I loved reading so much and that I lost myself in those stories really impacted my trajectory and the way that I became an advocate for myself or the way I stood up and championed for other people or, you know, whatever it was, I think I learned so much from those, from those girls in those books. Do you recall a moment in, in those books? Cause my daughters love those books as well. And I love that you mentioned those because it's, it is like a really great tool resource that young women can, can look to as, you know what, I, I can do great things, you know? Um, so I love that you mentioned that. Is there a story from a particular book that resonated with you so much so that it taught you? And I'm formulating this question in my head as we're on the fly, like I do sometimes. So if it doesn't make sense, feel free to, to say, I don't understand the question. But is there, was there a character in, in those books that reinforced the truth that you are worthy of doing hard things? No. For me, there there are several in those books, but the one that immediately comes to mind is Nancy Drew because, you know, she was a girl trying to solve a crime, right? Mm-hmm. And she was trying to figure out the mystery of whatever the crime was um, or whatever had happened, you know, and she was taking notes and she was interviewing people 
and she was putting all the pieces in order and she was bringing structure to the chaos. And then, and she was running toward the crisis rather than running away from the crisis. And that is my life today. Mm. I am always running toward the flames. I am constantly taking notes and bringing order to the chaos. And then I'm at the end bringing light to darkness, you know, which is what she did. She was solving a crime, you know, in, in those books, but I just loved her tenacity and her drive and her spirit and that she was not afraid to speak her mind or to question authority or to um, ask hard questions when sometimes it would have been easier for her to have um, cowered down, you know, as a young girl being taken seriously by adults and things like that. So, I mean, that to me is, is the perfect person out of all of those women that I read about and all of those young girls that stands out and is reflective of, you know, kind of who I am today. She was probably in Enneagram One then too, right? <laughs> she may have been. <laughs> Another childhood hero of yours, I'm assuming, from an article that I read or blog post that you that you read, are your mom and dad. And right. I'd love to talk about them for a moment. You did re- write a beautiful article about the lessons they taught you and that you carry forward with you today as a leader. Can you share some of those lessons with our audience? Of course. I specifically wrote an article recently um, for Father's Day about my dad. And um, my dad was a blue collar, you know, worker. He worked for the phone company. And and he did he retired from two different phone companies. He retired from AT&T and then he went to work for Sprint and he went to work for Sprint for years and then retired from from them. So he was always in telecommunications. We were a very middle class family. But my dad taught me so many leadership lessons in particular. And I don't know if you asked my dad if he would consider himself a leader to this day. But the things that he shared with me about how to care for people and how to, you know, the work ethic in particular that he brought to the table and modeled for me at my home really brought a lot of of value to me later in life. And it was it was him that I, I really feel like modeled that example. My dad was also the one who wanted me to read. My dad is dyslexic. And so mm-hmm. growing up, he always had a hard time in school. And he was determined that I was going to love books and that um, I was always going to be reading. And so he would take me to the library as a child every week. And to the, to the point where the women and, and men that worked in the library would put books to the side for me because they knew, you know, what I, what I liked to read. But um, I think he was a champion for my education and, uh, and that. Now, my mother, who I haven't written a blog post about recently, but my mother is who taught me how to have a loving and nurturing home. And... I mean, she is the epitome of a steel magnolia, a southern steel magnolia born and raised, you know, just outside of Atlanta. And um, she has weathered a really, really hard life. She grew up during the Depression. And, you know, there were times when she wasn't sure how she was going to eat. And then growing up in her home, 
you know, she taught me how to care for other people really, really well. And I, I remember my house was always the house that everybody wanted to come to. We had a pool and my mother always had food. And so everybody wanted to hang out at the Dixon house. And I think that was in large part to the kind of environment that my mom and dad built there. And then mm-hmm. culture, they just recently this summer are my childhood home that they have lived in for 41 years burned. And, oh no. Yes. And they've lost everything. And what I have learned from them through that pain and grief and, and trauma is what to really value in life. You know, you're going, I was literally going through ashes in my home, Mike. I was walking into my bedroom, my childhood bedroom, and then you're, you know, you're literally looking at ashes. And I remember sitting down with my mom and dad right after that happened and I'm going to figure out, you know, like what could potentially be salvaged, if anything. And there were very, very few things. And the value all came from the memories that were created in the home, not the things that were actually present in the home. And so I I can't imagine a more idyllic childhood. I had two very loving parents who were super involved in mine and my brother's lives. Um, they, They were champions for us and taught us how to advocate for ourselves. Um, they were invested in our education and in, I mean, they did not miss a dance recital or a volleyball game or an assembly at the school. And I don't know how they did that. I, now mm. as a parent of two myself, I, I don't know how they managed to do that. My mom still put dinner on the table, you know, mm. it just, mm. it seems crazy that all of that happened, but I, I can't imagine a better way to grow up. First of all, uh, how are your parents doing now? Oh, thank you for asking. They are, I would say, emotionally very fragile because they've lost everything. But we are in the process of helping them take their best next steps. They are alive. And I am so grateful for that. And they, you know, really are, it has put into um, full picture in front of us what's important and, and you know, what, what you should care about and, yeah. and all of it, what, you know, what you should value. Yeah, um, I, I a couple of years ago I had Lou Holtz on the show, oh, and yeah. and he talked about his house burned down, mm-hmm. uh, and it was due to a lightning strike, and they lost all of his Notre Dame memorabilia, and oh, they were standing, they were standing on the the corner, him and his wife, and he looked at his wife and in a very practical way said, "Honey." We can we we can be upset about this and mourn this, and for twenty four hours, and then and then we need to move on. <laughs> you know, like we need to figure out what we're right. going to do next because that that's not coming back, and all we have is choosing how we respond to it. You know, um, absolutely, absolutely. Well, and you know what it has uh, put into perspective for me too, Mike, is uh, much like you, I'm raising school age children. My parents are in their late 70s. So we are definitely in that sandwich generation now, which you hear about for so long. Mm-hmm. But now I am smack dab in the middle of. And it was the first time I ever saw my parents as vulnerable mm. and, and time for me to help care for them. Mm. And so I have been going back and forth. I live in Nashville and I've been going back and forth from Nashville to Atlanta on a weekly basis to try and help them navigate insurance claims and rebuilding and um, 
finding them, you know, displacing mm-hmm. them into a rental home and all of those kind of things. And they have really been looking to me to make those decisions and help them navigate. I run a business, as you, as you know, and I'm raising children. And, and so there's a lot of things vying for my attention. And I'm sure there are plenty of your listeners that are dealing with with very similar situations. It may not be a burned down house, but it could be, you know, a parent with dementia or it could be someone who's ill who they have to care for. And it just, there's a lot of stuff outside of my normal nuclear husband and two boys um, family that that's still demanding my attention. And you have to figure out how to prioritize Mm -hmm. that well and, and what to do. Because my mom and dad, gave me so much love and continue to growing up and have cared for me so well. I, I feel like it's only right to turn around and, and Absolutely. that, you know, I, I don't know if you, I, I, I don't know. I actually, I know you don't know this, but I've, cause I haven't shared it with you, but I actually, I was born in Georgia. Oh, you were? Where? Yeah. Hinesville. Oh yes. I know where that is. My dad was an army officer. So we were stationed both at Fort Benning and Fort Stewart. Sure. So we moved. So I'm a Georgia peach as well, you know. (laughs) 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 One of the things that you said about your parents that that I think is, I don't want to miss because we live in this kind of age where we'd like to bubble wrap our kids. And and as a result of that, they're not gritty and they don't know how to deal with setbacks. And you you said specifically that your parents taught you how to advocate for yourself. Yes. What did that look like, and how are you doing that today? So, you know, I think initially it was them showing me by example, right? Like this is the right way to approach your teacher when you have a question in class, and and certainly if my safety or or health or wellness was in question you know they would intervene but rather than doing that for me th- their expectation was that i learned how to do that for myself and i'm trying really hard to do that with my kids now so i have two boys one is 12 and one is 10 they are in the 7th and 4th grade so my oldest is in middle school and when he started middle school they have to bring an iPad to school every day because all of their books are on the iPad instead of lugging, you know, hard books around like the rest of us did with 800 pound backpacks. Um, and so if he forgets his iPad, that's on him, right? And it's up to him to make sure it's in his backpack that his stuff is out the night before. Um, if he's having a hard time in class with, with something, and, and we're talking about it. I'm like, have you asked your teacher about that? Have you asked to spend time with him or her? You know, or if there's a, a hard season or, or, or challenge with a friend or, you know, his baseball team or, you know, whatever. We try to equip them and coach them on how to handle those situations themselves rather than intervening and handling it for them. So rather mm-hmm. than driving back home and getting the iPad and bringing it back to school, or rather than walking to the coach and saying, why did you, you know, do this? We try to walk them through how they can navigate those conversations and, and challenges on their own. And I learned that from my mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And I think it set me up to be really successful as an adult because they weren't babying me and enabling me to 
rely on them uh, fully. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, we're doing the same thing. It's hard though because you God, see that so they're, they're, they're calling you and they're like, "Mom," they're on the phone crying. Oh, I forgot my iPad, you know. And you're like, "No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not. I'm not going to go get it." And then you have to <laughs> stick to your guns. You know, it's so right. hard. It's so hard to watch your children navigate pain, you know, um, whether it's in relationships or, or whatever. And so I, I think that to me is one of the hardest things about being a parent. You wear your heart on the outside of your body after you have your children mm-hmm. and you feel all of their pain, you know, with them and, mm-hmm. and making them go through those lessons on their own. Yeah. You know, and, and trying to equip them, sometimes you just want to jump in and fix it. You know, mm-hmm. and you know that they're going to be stronger when they're your age if you haven't done it. But dang, it's hard to do. Uh, so hard to do. So hard to do. But it's worth doing. It's worth doing. Like, right. like anything, anything worth doing is, is hard to do. What is up, my friends? Hope you are enjoying this episode so far. I want to encourage you to hit pause either now or before you listen to your next podcast or audiobook and head over to Amazon and pick yourself up a copy or two of Master the Key. We have a ton of ratings on Amazon right now where people are sharing the transformational impact that the message of the book is having in their own life. And we will resume reading those reviews in the weeks to come. But right now I want to read one of the endorsements that the book received from John Gordon on the back cover. He is the author, the best-selling author of The Carpenter and The Seed and most recently The Coffee Bean and all kinds of, of books. And he's also a prolific speaker. He speaks around the world and to sports teams and corporations across the country. And he says, Mike reminds us that no matter who we are, where we are, or what role we are playing, we each have the opportunity to direct the narrative of our life story and create a path toward a positive future. Thank you so much, John, for your support, your encouragement, and for your endorsement. Now you, my friends, hit pause, head over to Amazon, pick yourself up a copy or two of Master the Key, and then come back and finish this incredible episode with Heather Adams. I want to fast forward to now you're you're into the, the publicity world. Not quite at choice yet. You haven't gone spread out your wings yet to fly on your own. But was Thomas Nelson your first publicity gig? No, it wasn't. I I worked in um, NPR in Atlanta. I w- I was the public information officer for Cobb County, which is uh, a county just north of of Atlanta, about twenty ish miles. And I worked in the communications department there. And that's really where I learned all different kinds of aspects of communication. We had a TV show and we had a county magazine and we had all these different departments that I was, I had 13 county departments that I was responsible for. So whether it was public safety or the water department or, you know, whatever. And so um, that's, that was really my very first um, job in communications and in publicity specifically, I dealt with the local media there, not national mm-hmm. media. You know, I was dealing with the Marietta Daily Journal and Channel Two and, and places like that instead of you know the New York Times or the Today Show. But that was my very first job in communications. How did you make the transition from from there to Thomas Nelson? 
Well, so I was really stupid and arrogant. And <laughs> as, a, um, as a young um, professional, I, my boss in, at, at, in the Cobb County Communications Department left. And the director of our department, I told him I wanted her job. And he hired somebody else into that job. And, you know, I was like 23, 24 years old. I mean, what in the heck? And when he did that and he hired this other woman, I could not stand her from the very beginning. And really unfairly, I never gave her a chance. And I walked in one day and told them I was quitting and I left. I didn't give any notice. I didn't have another job lined up, but I just thought he had done me wrong, right? And so... I'm going to show him. Yes, exactly. And so <laughs> I left. I then went to work for a short period of time at a nonprofit in Atlanta. And then uh, 9-11 happened. And I was the head of the marketing department at that nonprofit, which sounds like a big deal, but it wasn't a big deal because I was young and inexperienced. and It was a nonprofit and you were kind of everything to everybody, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I was there for a short period of time and then 9-11 happened and our funding was pulled from the state. And, uh, and I ended up not having a job. And so I went back to work at my high school as a substitute teacher for a short period of time. And it was there that I was very humble, right? And I was very much um, trying to figure out what my next step was going to be. I was dating my then boyfriend, now husband at the time. And when we got engaged, we decided I was going to be the one that moved. And so when Matt and I married, I moved to Nashville. And that is when I went to work for Thomas Nelson's. So I had uh, several hiccups and the mm-hmm. thorny path to get back into you know what I had studied in school and what my heart's desire was. Um, but it, Thomas Nelson is really where I cut my teeth on national media and communications and and worked with the biggest of the big you new know, authors and influencers and changing. Yeah. yeah, was Michael Hyatt the CEO at that time? Well, when I first went to work for him, he was not. He was a group publisher and had several imprints at the company that were underneath him. And then after I had been there for a period of time, he got promoted to president. And then he eventually became CEO and, and, and chairman of the board. And so I worked for him for the, the whole time I was at Tom Nelson. And he is a force and a, a great mentor of mine. I just love and admire so much that I've learned from him. What are two or three lessons or, or what's, a, what's a hard lesson that he taught you that you had to you know, swallow as much as you wanted to swallow, to not swallow it and spit it out? <laughs> there are two that immediately come to mind. One is how to inject margin into your life. He is such an advocate for having white space in mm-hmm. your and for specifically making sure that you are resting. You know, he's a big advocate for taking naps every day and things like that, but also just allowing for margin as opposed to scheduling every minute of every day so that you can get it all done. That was a really hard lesson to learn, but one that has transformed my quality of life. And the second that I learned from him really early on 
at Thomas Nelson was this concept of being allies with your competitors. He, he encouraged me to read a book called Love is the Killer App. And it's all about having a love cat mentality. And, you know, I read it. I was probably 27, 28 years old when I read that book. And it was about embracing the competition and looking at them as someone to learn from and, and champion instead of someone to take down. And I, um, as somebody whose number one strength on the strengths finder is competition and who enjoys being best and first, um, that was a really hard pill for me to swallow. I mm. always, always wanted to be a winner. And, mm. and that meant taking down my, my competition. And, and I learned from my, and, and, and his influence in my leadership that, that that was not the best practice. Mm. Yeah, he is. I've been following Michael Hyatt for a long time and I'm just so inspired by him and his message. I've been a part of Platform University and, you know, that, that whole world. And it's just amazing what he's created. And in fact, I had Daniel Harkavy, his co author of Living Forward, yes. on the show. He was like episode four when I first started. Daniel is brilliant. We worked on that book on Living Forward with Michael oh, really? and Daniel. Oh, cool. and- and that there's so much to that life planning that they, you know, you really, you put a plan together for, you know, saving for a vacation or sending your kids to college, but you don't put your own life plan together. And, and that book was a, a game changer for me and mm-hmm. through, through how to do that with your daily life, but then, you know, waking up 20 years from now and, and it having just happened to you. Now the, the question uh, I'm gonna I gotta ask it have you have you written your eulogy yet? <laughs> of course, we had to do that as part of working on that project. Ooh, yes. Yeah. Okay, save that. That's gonna that's gonna come in later. Um, so <laughs> you're you're at Thomas Nelson, big huge company, like huge. I mean, well, it was um, the world's largest Christian publishing house when I yeah. went. It's yeah. now a division of Harper Collins, which is one of the five big three publishers in the world. Right. Um, but it was the world's largest Christian publishing house when I was there. And it, I mean, it, it was a, a force in the publishing industry and still is. S- still is. Yeah. In fact, I just had an author on yesterday from Thomas Nelson. I had uh, Remy Adilake, um, who wrote Transform, the Navy mm-hmm. SEAL on the yeah. show. He's an amazing and guy. I've heard about the book. I haven't read it, but I've Yeah. Heard He's got an amazing things. story. He was, he was Nigerian royalty. His dad died. The Nigerian government seized all their assets and, and basically expelled them from the country. And so the next day, he's five years old and he's living in the Bronx and they have nothing. His mom's on food stamps, you know. And, and it's just a crazy story. When you go back to those days at Thomas Nelson, you think about the first client that you were the lead publicist for. What was that experience like? Were you, were you excited? Were you... Like you, you're 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 a competitor on that on the Strengths Finder. I'm an activator. That's my number one. And were you like, I'm going to crush this, or were you anxious, or what, what was it like? Well, it was Max Lucado. Oh so wow! Okay. It was intimidating as all get out. <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely having imposter syndrome fears because I was like, Who am I to be working on this brilliant man's books? 
who has like he has an impact on how people feel about Jesus. Like that is a serious, you know, mm-hmm. responsibility here. Mm-hmm. And he could not have been more kind and more gracious and more thoughtful. I would jump in front of a bus for him because and work my fingers to the bone for him because he is as good as they come. Mm-hmm. And every experience I had with him on a lot of books after that first one was very good. But I remember I flew to San Antonio with our team and um, we were working on his book had, had just launched and it was a huge partnership and we were going to his church in San Antonio for uh, a, the big launch, you know, um, book launch event. And, you know, when you go into a room with all of these executives and ministry leaders and all these people who have been surrounding Max for years, and you're sitting in a room and, and we're getting ready uh, for the event and we're going around the room and everybody is praying over Max. Mm. And it comes to me and it's my turn. You think, please, God, just give me the 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 words, let them come forth from my mouth because there's so much pressure there to perform and to do well and to be impressive and to sound competent. And, you know, so that, I, I mean, I remember the experience Mm. vividly. It's like Mm. etched in my mind. Mm. That's powerful. At what point did you start to think about going out on your own? So I've never talked about this before, Mike, But in my last year at Thomas Nelson, which was 2010, um, I hired an executive coach to work with me. And I did it on my own outside of work and nobody at work knew that I was doing it. And I told him that I desired more for myself than what I felt like I was getting from Thomas Nelson. I didn't see a path for me there. I, I was the head of the publicity department. I had all these people that worked for me that I loved and adored, and I had built a really good team there. And um, they kept trying to promote me, but they wanted me to go into a different area of business in order to be promoted. And I didn't want to do that because I loved publicity and I was good at publicity. And I, I knew the value that I was bringing to the company. And so I went to our publisher and made a suggestion about working and helping in acquisitions, but continuing to run the publicity department. Because of my relationships with major national media outlets, I was coming into contact with these incredible people who could be potential authors for Thomas Nelson. And so I, um, I went to them and, and suggested that, and they loved the idea. And we brought in, you know, some more people on the leadership team. And my publisher was a real advocate for me. He just recently passed away and um, had, had such a significant impact on my um, career there. But he was such an advocate for me. And, and we were we were explaining to the group publisher and to the president and all of them, you know, why we thought that this would be valuable. Well, it ended up not working out. And we just come to an agreement. And I I said no to the offer that they made, which I think a lot of people would have said yes to because it, you know, they they would have wanted to have continued on that path or whatever. And I stood up for myself and said no. And when I did that. 
and I, I met with my executive coach afterwards. He said, this is the um, beginning of the end for you at Thomas Nelson. Mm. And I said, no, I, I love them. This, I love this company and I love these people and I love what I'm doing. And he said, it's the first time you've said no to them though. And you're mm. really drawing your line in the sand. Mm. And so what happened after that, Mike, was um, we were in the middle of a recession. You know, it started in 09 and we, we were well into 2010. And we were, Thomas Nelson was going through round after round of layoffs. You know, and, and it was over a period of, you know, months, months, months. Um, but you'd go in one day and five people would lay off, or you'd go in one day and 50 people would be laid off. It was like a sharpshooter taking people out. Mm-hmm. And so it was really a tumultuous time and scary time about, you know, your job and whether you were keeping it or not. And I got laid off. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'll never forget it because I was in New York that week pitching our current catalog and I had taken our publicity team and we were going, you know, from one media outlet to the next in New York pitching our, our current catalog. And, and I had secured some really uh, strong national media coverage for our books. And I came home on a Thursday and I got laid off on a Friday. And, you know, what that taught me was as much as I loved them and as much as I sacrificed my own family, at the end of the day, they made a business decision, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they let me go. And that is when I was reminded, uh, you're not in control, Heather. I'm in control. Mm-hmm. This is God mm-hmm. telling me like, you're, I'm, I'm the one in control here. And so that's when I went out on my own. I think that it was exactly what I needed looking back now. Um, I'm not sure how long it would have taken me to have left on my own. So I, I had this question already written down later for later on in the in the round of questions, but I'll bring it up now because it, it ties in perfectly to your your saying no, right? Mm-hmm. So so eventually you you got that offer, you said no. The recession happens, you get laid off. You're forced to kind of go out on your own and eventually start choice publicity. And one of the questions I was going to ask is is about developing your no muscle, mm. um, because especially when you're starting out as an entrepreneur and, and you guys more successful than ninety nine percent of new businesses starting up, because most don't make it where you are today, which is the the past the five year mark, right? right? And some of that is because they. Think they need to say yes to everyone. If you fog a mirror, I'll work with you, kind of an attitude, right? But I've always been like, no, I just can't do that. I can't. It's just, I've got to say no to people. And no matter how much pressure I feel on the outside, other people saying, you've got to say yes because you're, you're just getting started and blah, blah, blah. I, no, I got to say no. So, how have you developed? That no muscle, and maybe it goes all the way back to your parents teaching you how to advocate for yourself. Well, I am known as being a, a pretty direct person, and I try to do it in kindness, right? So that I don't come across as a, a, a different word. And um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I, when we launched Choice, 
And even when I first left Thomas Nelson, let me back up to that. When I first left Thomas Nelson, I got, I got laid off on a Friday. On Sunday that weekend, our number one competitor CEO called. She, she was from Zondervan. And she said, we understand what's happened. We would love to talk to you. I think you could make a significant impact in our publicity department. Would you be interested in speaking with us? And my husband said something to me that will never leave me. And he said, I don't want you to take your next step out of fear. Fear that we can't pay our mortgage. Fear that, you know, we're not going to be able to put food on the table for the boys. You know, whatever it is. I want you to take your next step in joy and in passion and in excitement. But that don't take your next step out of fear really was the right thing that I needed to hear at that very moment. So what I did was I went to Zondervan and met with them and loved their team and said, I can do this work in my sleep. And I would love to build your department and train your team and help with acquisitions and, and change you know, the reputation of this department and really put you on the map for this. But I'm not going to do it as a full-time employee and I'm not going to live in Michigan. I want to stay in Nashville. And they agree. And so I would say no to certain things and yes to other things. And so that's where I first did, you know, no thing. But then when I went out on my own and started choice, you know, it was because I led that department as a consultant for about four and a half years. And I missed having my own team that I was pouring into and developing. I was doing that for somebody else's benefit, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I, I did was I we started Choice in 2014 because of that desire to develop people. And one of the um, filters that came was to say no more than we say yes. And for our yes to be 100% yes, a unanimous yes around the table, no matter who was on the team. And that was because a friend of mine who was in the business, who most people would see as a competitor, she, you know, I had hired her and her publicity firm when she was, when I was at Thomas Nelson. And she reached out to me and just said, I want to be here for you. How can I help you? Let me support and encourage you. Let me tell you what the lessons that I've learned. And one of the things that she said to me was she said, say no when you know it's a no. Don't say yes because you need to say yes to pay a bill or you need to say yes to keep the lights on, you know, whatever. You know, say, don't say yes, essentially out of fear. And and I've always done that since. And Mike, there are times when that scares the hell out of you, right? Because you Mm -hmm. think, I've got to be able to pay everybody's check next week or whatever. Right. Where is the money going to come from? But it has served me so well to draw those boundaries. And I think as a working mom, a working parent, I think there are lessons to be learned to doing that in the work-life dynamic too about saying no, not just to potential clients or whatever, but also... I originally, when Dixon started kindergarten, I originally was the room mom. And I did that all the way until last year when he was in um, sixth grade. I was always the class mom in, in his or Thaxon's class. And I felt this obligation to do that because I was a working parent. And it was like, well, if I want to know what's going on at school, you know, I need to do this. And so I said yes when they asked me. And it was, I hated it. 
And I, you know, begrudgingly put emails together begging somebody to bring, you know, the cupcakes to the Valentine's Day party or whatever it was. And last year, for the first time, I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. It doesn't excite me. And instead, I did one event. I did the faculty luncheon and I worked with a committee on that. And I still knew what was happening at the school. I was still an invested parent, but I said no to something that I had done to myself. I had, that was all self-inflicted guilt. It wasn't mm-hmm. anybody saying, you need to be the room mom. But I think there's so much from business that we can also apply in our everyday personal lives too about saying no. Yeah, 100%. And, and you know, on that point, you, making mistakes and not saying no, it, you know, and as a result, making mistakes, is, it's part of the learning and the growing process, whether as a business owner or in life. And certainly, you know, you've worked for these great organizations for the bulk of your career. And then you're forging your own path as an entrepreneur. So as you embarked on your journey, and in the last maybe five years, or, or even, even as a consultant, because even though you were a consultant for a corporation, it's still kind of entrepreneurial. Um, totally. What, what is a mistake that you made that tested your will? And what did you do to overcome it? Well, um, when I initially started Choice, I went into a partnership. So I started with the business with another woman. And several years into the business, we knew it was broken and not working. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's very difficult to work for two um, founders, right? And for um, two bosses when they're not on the same page about things. And she was in a little bit different season of life than I was because her children were little bitty. And as a she was navigating some some things that were, you know, because of the season of life she was in. And it was making it difficult for her. And I empathized with that and wanted to love her well during that. But when I look back now, the dissolvement of that partnership was very, very painful. It was painful because of the way it ended. It was also painful because I lost a great friend um, in addition to a business partner. And when you talk about testing your will, I look back on that season and think about, I don't know how there were times that I put one foot in front of the other. I don't know how I served our clients well. I don't know how I served my team well. But had I not gone through that pain and that lesson, I would not have the choice that exists today. Mm -hmm. Because choice is so much stronger. We have the most incredible team. We have really great clients. It is such a privilege to serve. And it's because of some of those lessons that I learned out of the dissolvement of that partnership. You have some, uh, some great team members. Um, I've, I've had the honor to, to collaborate with a couple of them. And uh, I just was thinking that you should call them Heather's Angels because they're all women <laughs> at the moment, you know. Uh, they are all women. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, they're, they're just a, a dynamic group of, of women that are doing amazing things and you guys are collaborating together. And then I've spoken with Tracy as well. Uh, right. It's Tracy, correct. Or Trisha. Trisha. Yeah. Trisha. Trisha yeah. Trisha. Business Trisha. Business yes. Your business right. development. Yeah. Yeah. She, I've talked, I've spoken with, uh, that was how actually my first conversation was 
with you and Trisha. Um, right. But I've worked with Sarah, and I'm and most recently I'm working with Devin Lee. Right. And uh, just been a, a great experience to to collaborate with them, and they all love what they're doing, and they love being part of Choice. And it's not common to see that kind of energy and spirit and enthusiasm and joy today. I don't, I don't think it's very common. And so I'd love to learn how you cultivated that, how you built that in your organization, because it goes beyond culture. Thank you. Thank you for saying that about them and about our team. I just, I couldn't agree more. They're, um, they're gems and I'm, I'm grateful every day for them. You know, when we initially started Choice, we had kind of one goal in mind of, of the way we were going to serve clients and what we were going to do for services to offer and what kind of team. There was a, a different vision. And after that partnership dissolved, about a year after that, I, I kept looking at our mission and our values and going, this just doesn't seem 100% accurate anymore. And it wasn't reflective of every woman at the table. It was something that we had created with a business consultant months before we opened the doors to choice, right? And so last year, I took our entire team on a strategic planning retreat. And one of the things that we did was we reevaluated the mission and the values, the core values of choice. And we went through this really fun exercise that was very revealing. And during the course of that, we we talked about what it was that we valued when we were in the customer or client role. And we had very similar patterns. Um, you, could, you could draw themes from what I said versus what Tricia said versus what Gary said, right? But there, there was this consistency. And so we, we you know, filtered it down and narrowed it down and we got to, to where we are now. And I think having every voice represented in the development of that mission and and what we value at Choice was a game changer for the culture at Choice because everyone has skin in the game. I involve them in major decisions. And so it's not just they take a paycheck and do their work and go home. It is very much that it feels like a family because we care for each other outside of the office. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they are, there's a fire in their belly for the work that we do because they had a part in determining what that was mm-hmm. and what kind of clients we were going to serve and what they were excited about doing. And, um, and I think there's something to that, Mike, when you involve your team in those decisions and in that vision and in those long-term goal setting sessions. And you don't just decide it and dictate it, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, no, totally. Because one other. Oh, sorry. I was no. Just go ahead. Before I forget, one other thing is I have always had this mentality that a win for one is a win for all, and that was something I had to learn because I sucked at it. You know, when I was young in my mm-hmm. career. I mean, to that mm-hmm. point about my, you know, helping me understand I I can be allies and not competitors with people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
we truly mean that when Sarah does well and secures national media for a client, Devin Lee doesn't look at that as to her detriment. She looks at that as a win for choice and a win for our team. Yeah. You know, and it drives her to do well um, on the projects that she's working on. And so I think that that having that culture, particularly among all women, which could easily turn into catty, snippy um, gossip. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I love that. That's really powerful. The the win for one is the win for all, and cultivating that, and, and the only way that you're going to get people on board with that and believing in that is if they actually have had and, and completely bought in to the vision, mission, and culture of of the organization. And the only way that they can really do that is if they really know who they are, what their gifts are, that they're worthy, that that they can do hard things. So every one of us has a bad day. Um, your employees, your team members have a bad day. You have a bad day. But when you have a bad day, it's up to... It, it's, it, and, and Sarah has a bad day, right? Mm-hmm. You, you don't... She's not going to necessarily speak into your life, but you have to be the 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 boss and the cheerleader for Sarah and your team, and that's challenging. Uh, but it's so important to to set them up for success emotionally, mentally, spiritually, all of that stuff. How do you do that? How when you when you see your employees going through difficult challenges, your team members? Because I believe that every organization, in order to succeed in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Regardless of what their product or service is, they need to become a personal development organization. Right. What do you, how do you do that? How do you cultivate that in your own team? Well, I think you have to throw out all the policies and love them well as a human being first. And so if I have someone going through a hard season, you know, um, which we have experienced certainly then I have to forget about, you know, uh, what are they doing for me responsibility-wise? And I have to um, tap into what do they need right now that is going to help them? How can I love them well during this season? Last year, we had uh, one of our employees suffered a, a, a miscarriage. And she, it was a very dark period of time for her. and. Um, and she has shared it publicly now. That's why that's the only reason I would say anything. But, you know, I threw out like the one on ones and the spreadsheets of what she was working on. And I went over to her house and said, you know, how can I best help you through this? What do, what do you need? And that was giving her some time off, right? And, and not worrying about whether she was taking vacation days and how many she was burning up. And that was allowing her to go to therapy during a, a mm. weekday, you know, and not not worrying about how it affected her her um, work schedule. And it was, um, it was, it was things like that that I threw out what the policy was, and I just wanted to love on her and take care of her. And ultimately, what that did was it drove her to want to do well for choice when she returned. And when mm-hmm. she had gotten through that, and she has said to me so many times since, 
I know that there are not very many places on this planet where I could have been and gone through that season and been treated the way that I was treated and done the work that I did. You know, everybody jumped in and helped. And so um, I think there's something to that. So often we're so regimented about what the policy says or what the procedure is or what the structure has to be. And we forget that these are all human beings at the end of the Mm -hmm. day. Mm-hmm. And that if we just care for each other well first, that mm-hmm. some of that other is going to come. Because I have found, Mike, that when I care for my team well outside of the office, when we celebrate weddings and their birthdays and accomplishments that they've had, and when we help them through hard seasons where there's a challenge or they're suffering in some way, shape, or form, then they care for their job and choice so much more. Because they know what choice is giving to them personally. Totally. Have you ever read the book called The Dream Manager? No. It's by, you know who Matthew Kelly is? Uh-uh. He's a author and speaker. Um, you, need, you should read that book. I think that your organization and your culture and what you just communicated really resonates with that and might be another way to even level up everything that you're, you're doing even more. It's a great short read. By Matthew Kelly, he's I'll a multiple times, that. he's a multiple times New York Times bestselling author, and yeah, you know, I'll have really, to look it up. Really I'm not guy. familiar, but I will add that to my Amazon cart. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma. They work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur holds you to call. Now, you are an incredible leader and a visionary and risk taker and all of those things. And, and, and your story has been like super inspiring. And I know that people are going to take a, a lot away. They're, they're, I, I actually believe that people will sit back and listen to this and, and you've given them a lot to think about. Now, I want you to transition to your publicist hat. Okay. Okay. That's fun for me. <laughs> and I want you to share, we're going to go back to mistakes, but I want, now I want you to share about mistakes that you are seeing people make when they try to get publicity today. Cause everybody's trying to get publicity today in one way, shape or form. Cause everybody is, there are more influencers, quote unquote, right today than ever in the history of mankind. <laughs> right. And and you know it's just there's so much noise so what what are the most common mistakes that people make cuz there there are people that listening right now that that need publicity cuz they actually have really good product services whatever message to share but but they and let's say they're not at a level yet where they can hire choice publicity mm-hmm. what are the mistakes that you see them making and what can they do as they're building their platform to gain publicity, to grow to a point where they can call Heather Adams and her, her angels and say, hey, help me. You know, I think 
a lot of times people are so interested in being bigger, fast, that they neglect the audience that brought them to the table, right? And so some people are interested in going after national media before they've done local media, or some people are interested in growing their audience to 100,000 and are neglecting the 10,000 who are, are following and paying attention to them and in their platform right now. And certainly there is a way to do that. But huge mistakes that I see made um, involve people um, thinking that they need to be you know, in the pages of USA Today when really they need to be in the pages of their local paper first. And, and, and taking those right steps. Number one, and the national media is so much more interested when local or smaller media have done something first. Number two, it helps you to get experience doing interviews, telling your story well and effectively, you know, before you're on the national platform. So I think that's one thing that is a huge mistake I see. But probably the biggest mistake that I see, Mike, right now is people not being able to communicate in a clear, concise, and compelling way what it is that they do. Maybe it's a product, maybe it's a service they offer, or maybe it's a message that they have, but they are not communicating that in a way that is effective. And so they feel like they have to have all this flowery language or this industry jargon And at the end of the day, they just need to bring it down very simply and distill it very clearly and concisely. And and two, just because somebody else is doing something doesn't mean you have to do it. So you've got to find out and, and clearly communicate what it is about your business or your product or your service that is distinctive. You know, there's a lot out there vying for all of our attention. There's all this noise. And so what is it that is going to get you above the fray? Well, you've got to figure out what that is that's distinctive. And I I don't think people are telling their stories well. And um, that's probably the biggest mistake I see from a publicity standpoint when people are trying to do it on their own. Do you have an example of maybe a client of yours or maybe, maybe somebody that you see that's not a client of yours that has done a really good job of you know, picking apart their message or their, their, their elevator pitch, so to speak, and getting, getting rid of all the, the highfalutin flowery language and getting to the essence of what they really do. And maybe you could talk, probably more appropriate to talk about one of your clients that you've taken through this process to get to the essence of what it is that they're, they're doing. Well, I'll use a recent example. This is a current client of ours. She's known as the budget mom. Her name is Nico. And she had built a platform on social media and through a blog um, about how to have uh, uh, put together a budget, have a savings plan and pay off debt. And she had never worked with a publicity firm before. She wasn't sure. She was just leaving a full-time job to run the budget mom, you know, on her own. And so that, as you can imagine, is really scary when you're Mm -hmm. leaving guaranteed income and then you're responsible for it yourself. So she wasn't sure if she could afford us or not and and if it was going to be a good investment. And what we did was we took 
her teaching and distilled it down. And one of the recent headlines that we led with or pitch angles that we led with is she's a single mom and she paid off $77,000 of debt in 18 months. And so we led with that and we said, here is a woman who can teach you how to budget paycheck by paycheck rather than having a monthly budget or whatever. She, her, her teaching is really like budget by paycheck, like what you're earning and what's coming to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, it has just recently like exploded. Devin Lee is doing everything she can to answer people as fast as possible because her pitches have gone so crazy. I mean, we had her in the New York Times and the Washington Post the exact same day. She's been on Inside Edition and Good Morning America. Like all these things have happened to her, but it was because she was not communicating well on what it was she offered and what it was she was teaching. And when we helped her distill that down and be really clear, like when you hear that a single mom has paid off $77,000 of debt in that short period of time, you go, what is she doing? How yeah. can I learn from her? How can I mm. figure that out? How can I do that? How can I apply? And so that's a, that's a perfect example of someone that um, we've been working with lately and we've seen such tremendous success with once we made clear what it was she was offering. Mm. That's a great example and wonderful tips that I think everybody can apply regardless of where the where they're at. And I love the idea of reaching out to your local media first because the reality is is that they have a budget too and if they don't have space to fill they're going to fill it with some crap that's not going to add value to to their readership. So if you have something valuable, go reach out, build a relationship with your local media that you can because they're looking for content, you know. All the time. Yeah. And you're local, so you can go to the station, you can go meet with them in person, you can create that rapport and relationship. And I think a lot of people write um, local media off, but local, you know, media begets media. And it's mm-hmm. going to give you such good experience working through the kinks at the local media level before you move to the national platform. Do they need to write a press release? We have almost completely exhausted press releases. Um, We haven't retired them completely yet, but we are really, really close. It's just not the way of the media world as much anymore. Are people still sending press releases? Of course. But what we are doing is we are, you know, on the national media level in particular, you have a lot of producers and editors, freelancers, whatever, who are riding the train into the city to go to work. So more than any other time ever in my career, they are reading their pitches and and information that we're sending them on their mobile device, right? Hmm. They're reading it while they're on the train, going and coming to work and all that stuff. And so you want it to be short and sweet. You don't need all of this other stuff in there with 16 bullet points about what you can talk about and, you know, all of this. So, you know, I think that's that's one big thing when it comes to a release is it doesn't have to be so formal. It, it just needs to be compelling and, and short. I can't mm-hmm. emphasize that enough. It, it really mm-hmm. needs to be short. And you have to be a consumer of that media outlet to know how to pitch them effectively. So mm-hmm. if you want to be on ESPN, then you need to be watching shows on ESPN. You know, And, and if you want to be in the pages of 
you know, a, a specific magazine like Real Simple, then you need to be reading Real Simple magazine because you're not going to know what columns they have. You don't, you're not going to know who writes on what beat. You're not going to know what feels authentic to them and what doesn't if you're not consuming that media outlet. That is the number one frustration of media gatekeepers is when you pitch them something that they would never, ever do. Don't waste their time. You're just going to, um, you know, mm-hmm. get deleted. But instead, when you go to them with something customized to them that they know is, is perfect for their end audience, mm-hmm. then they're, they're going to be more inclined to, to give you consideration. Important lesson there, entrepreneurs seeking to get media, don't get deleted. (laughs) (laughs) Because there is no coming back from that with that particular person. Well, Heather, this has been both inspirational and educational as we like all of our episodes to be. And before we wrap up with the same questions that I ask of every guest, I want to make sure people can connect with you online, go learn about choice, and follow you and your activities. Sure. I appreciate you asking. So Choice Media and Communications is the name of our firm, but all of our handles are Choice Publicity. So it's choicepublicity.com for our website. Um, If you're on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, it's Choice Publicity. Our favorite social media is is Instagram. We love that space. Um, We have an amazing blog on our website. So it's just choicepublicity.com slash blog, or you can click on the, the blog tab at the very top of the website. Um, and we cover a lot of different categories there, Mike, everything from our current obsessions to productivity hacks, to um, communication insights and tips, uh, a lot of, uh, of discussion around work-life dynamic and how to navigate that if you're in that season where you're trying to manage you know, both both of those things. So our blog has some, uh, some really strong content there as well. But that's where you can find all of the things about choice. And then my personal Instagram is Heather Dixon, D-I-X-O-N Adams. So Heather Dixon Adams is my personal Instagram. And I would love to connect with your listeners. I am so grateful to be with you. I have really, really enjoyed our conversation. And it has brought out things that I have never talked about before, which is oh, cool. really revealing. Yeah, those are the best. Those are the best. Right. Last of the, or first of the three final questions that I ask every single person. The first question is if you can pick any skill that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Ooh, crisis management. I think that Mm -hmm. it's something I'm really good at. I am definitely the person that runs toward the crisis instead of away from it. I, um, you know, when something, mom and dad's fire is a perfect example of that, running toward it, to manage it, to help. Um, When a client is going through something and it's blowing up in their face and they need help navigating it, you know, that that is my favorite kind of situation to be in. so crisis management, I think, would be mine. There are so many people that cower from that, that don't want to deal with that. When I see something in the news, whether it's a celebrity who's done something you know, tragic or it's um, a business that you know, their CEO has, has done something that's affecting their bottom line or whatever, and, and it's a, a crisis, I, I immediately sit down with the team and go, okay, this is what I would have done if I was handling it. As, awesome. Fantastic. 
Yeah, that's so awesome. The, the next question is, what are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from realizing what we're capable of achieving? Mm. Okay, I have four. And I say four, okay. so three. Because <laughs> you're a competitor, absolutely. You're going to be number one. Nobody's done four before, only you. <laughs> number one, I don't have time. I think if you put it on the calendar, it happens. And I think it's what you prioritize in that season. And, you know, like for years, I, I said I didn't have time to exercise. And, and last year in 2018, I made that a priority. And now it's on my calendar multiple days a week when before I would have told you I don't have time to exercise. So I don't have time, I think, is, is one lie. The second is the lie that we have to say yes. Like I must say yes to that in order to advance in my career, in order to have friends, in order to be connected with my spouse, in order for my children um, to know I love them, in order to um, secure that client, I must say yes. And I think saying no, there's so much more power in that and really Mm -hmm. knowing how to say no well, but also what your filters are for determining if it's a yes or no, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's important. Um, my third would be something that we've talked about throughout this entire podcast, which is, I think it's a lie to say you can't be allies with the competition. Um, we are having a choice summit for the very first time in, at the end of September, and we have invited, um, communication and publicity professionals from all over the country to come for a a day to, to, to work together. We're bringing in speakers and consultants who are experts in particular competencies that would help our industry. And, you know, a lot of people would say, you're going to help the competition be successful at business development, or you're going to help the competition hire talent well. Um, won't that be to your disadvantage? And my, my you know, answer is an emphatic no. Um, I, want, uh, I want to believe wholeheartedly that iron sharpens iron and that a rising tide raises all boats. And so, um, so I think that is a lie that you mm-hmm. can't be allies with competition. And my fourth, my fourth one, Mike, is something that I, uh, my mentor told me years and years ago, and I have really applied to my business and that the, I think it's a lie that you have to be the smartest and best in the room. Mm-hmm. I think as I hire women for choice and, and have led teams, you know, one of the things that I have done is tried to hire smarter and better than me. And I think so often people are threatened by that, by the fact that, oh, that person writes better than me, or, oh, that person pitches better than me, or, oh, that person has more media relations than I do, or, you know, whatever. And um, unfortunately, I think that it is, is so short-sighted because if you have people who are better and smarter than you surrounding you, you're only going to up your own game, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. That's, that's a... I love those. All four of those will be the first and the only. (laughs) Uh, Now, the final question goes back to living forward. Okay, there's there's actually a great Mm. book by an author named Clay Christensen. Clay Christensen, who wrote a book called "How Will You Measure Your Life," and that is typically how I ask the question. I I typically say it's a hundred years from now, and you've left a set of instructions for a publicist to pitch the media on how Heather Adams would measure her life. 
but you've already done that because you've written your your eulogy. So <laughs> what what will the eulogist say about how Heather Adams has measured her life? I think there are a few things for me. Um, you know, I, I shared earlier that I am raising boys who will eventually become men. And for me, one of the biggest things to determine whether I have had a successful life or not is to look and see how my boys are treating and advocating for women later in their life. Mm. Um, you know, I, I am so proud that they look at me and they don't think it's unusual for me to be a female CEO, that they think that's normal. That's their normal. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so, um, I want them to learn how to treat women in their classrooms and women who may be their bosses one day and women who are, um, peers to them. I want them to be advocates, uh, for those women and champions for those women. And I think if, if I've done that and they are treating women um, respectfully and kind and, and, and doing that for them, then, then that's a huge measurement for success for me. The mm-hmm. other would be, you know, if women in my future, if, if the narrative and the path for them is different than what I navigated and their legacy, the, the legacy of the women that I have poured into and developed, you know, while I've been here, if it's different for those women because of something that I did or modeled or um, uh, inspired them to action or empowered them to do, then I think that's that's a huge measurement for success. And and you know, we've alluded to it a little bit throughout the course of the um, of the interview, but you know, I'm I'm a Christian. I know you are as well. And um, so for me, a huge uh, testament and measurement for the end of my life would be if there are more people in heaven because of the teeny tiny role that I played in their life on earth, Um, Mm -hmm. whether it was because of the work that I did or the relationship that I had with them. But if they know Jesus and are in heaven because of one small thing that I did on this planet, then I think that 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 really is a big deal. Amen to that. That's the, uh, that's the ultimate way to end this conversation (laughs) with, 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 with a holy period, you know, (laughs) Um, Heather Adams it's been an absolute joy having you on the Impact Entrepreneur Show thank you so much same Mike I I am so grateful for the opportunity to be with you and have loved our conversation thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening if you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters, we could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact.